Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Christian Centre. It's just great to be with you this morning. And this morning, as has already been said, it's Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday marking that moment where Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem. And, uh, and it's, the, it's this story that we're going to look at this morning. Um, I come from a tradition, in fact, I grew up in the house church in the 1970s. And, uh, and, and the house church resisted anything really that sort of, let's call it, smacked of tradition. So things like marking Palm Sunday or talking about Holy Week uh, was just never a part of our language because, in a way, in the 70s, we were resisting tradition and trusting that God would do something new and special. And, of course, resist- I think probably resisting trans- um, that whole tradition is a good thing when it becomes the object of our worship. But I think we're in danger, too, of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And as I've been reading recently in my morning readings, the book of Leviticus, which is a challenge to read, what I suddenly realize is that actually liturgy, um, specific rhythms of worship, and indeed I'd even say ritual, are an essential part of living life faithfully. And why do I say that? Because I'd say that for three reasons. And I thought I'd just make this as an entry point as we go and look at Palm Sunday this morning. It, it, there are three things they do. Number one, it creates regular touch points in our daily lives between heaven and earth. What do I mean by that? If I just give you the simple example, and Marion's very good at this, at saying grace at a meal. You know, it, what it does is it, it draws heaven and earth closer together. So sometimes rhythm, ritual, or even liturgy en- enables us to touch heaven in a significant way. The second thing it does, I think, is that it reminds us of pivotal ideas that are foundational to our Christian faith. Pivotal ideas that are foundational to our Christian faith. So in the Jewish calendar, they have very strict festivals that they all celebrate together. Why do they do that? Well, they do it for the same reason that when Jesus breaks bread with his disciples that Phil talked about last week, he makes a really clear point. He says, do this as often as you meet together in remembrance of me. The whole point of that is that he takes the concept of what it means to die at Calvary, to give himself as a ransom for our sin, and then says, do this on a regular basis. He institutes, in a way, uh, a ritual with some liturgy. Why? To remind us of the pivotal nature of his death and resurrection. And then thirdly, what it does is it enables us to join together in a sort of uniform way. It unites us um, in our celebration. So this morning, there'll be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people worldwide who will be celebrating Palm Sunday. When we join together in some sort of sense of regular rhythm or liturgy or even ritual, it joins us to the wider body of Christ. Now, why do I say all of these things? Because I think we should start or begin to reintroduce some of these things into our life. I want to challenge you. What are the sort of, what is your family's liturgy or your own personal rhythm or or contact point where heaven and earth meets, where you're reminded of the big pivotal concepts of our faith, the things that are foundational to us as human beings? And where is, where is it that those connect beyond you to the wider body of Christ? So before we start, I want to just encourage you, let's mark some of these events in a much more purposeful way. So as I said this morning, we're going to look at this whole story of Palm Sunday. What does it mean? And to do this, we're going to look at two scriptures. About 500 years before this event actually took place, Zechariah, a prophet in the Old Testament, prophesied. 
he foresaw this event happening. We're going to look at what he says about this event, and then we're going to read the account from Luke chapter 19, where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So let's do that together, starting with Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious. He is humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken off and he will commend peace, command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And now why don't we look at these verses in Luke chapter 19 that are the fulfillment of a prophecy given 500 years before the event. So starting in Luke 19 verse 28, uh, we read this. After he'd said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he'd come near Bethpage in Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find there a colt that's never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, just say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent departed and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the priests in the crowd, sorry, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were to stay silent, the very stones would cry out. So they're the verses we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to look at three things. Firstly, I'm going to give you an introduction to these verses. That's what I'm going to do to begin. Set the scene uh, before we look at these verses. And then we're going to look at two things that these verses tell us, both about this king who enters Jerusalem. What does it tell us about the nature of Jesus, our King? And then what does it tell us about the nature of his kingdom, the way he governs, the way he rules? What does it tell us about the nature of his kingdom? And then we're going to draw, hopefully, some practical lessons from that, things that we might apply in our life every day. So firstly, let me give you a bit of an introduction or set a historical and cultural context to these verses. It needs to be said, first of all, that we have to recognize that um, Israel... Um, are occupied by Roman rule. They are part of the Roman Empire. And what they've begun to see is their, some of their culture, some of their traditions, some of their hopes and dreams of what it truly means to be the people of God are being diminished by this occupying rule which comes from Rome. So the Roman Empire is, in fact, having a radical impact on the nation of Israel. And they can see some of their dreams of who they're supposed to be as a people uh, ebbing away. And so they're looking, they're looking in anticipation for uh, what Isaiah speaks of and other prophets speak of, a Messiah that will come 
in the same shape as Moses. You remember Moses went to Pharaoh in Egypt and it was through Moses' leadership as a type of Jesus that God frees the people of Israel from Pharaoh. So these people know they're looking for a Messiah who will deliver them from their current occupation and free them to become the people who God wants them to be. That's the first part of the background to this story. The second part of the background, it's important to know, is that when a king entered a city, and this was often a part of their culture, normally a king would enter a city on a massive white horse, like top-of-the-range stallion-style horse. And he'd come along with lots of other fine horses, chariots, soldiers. It would be, it would be a, a, an astonishing sight as he rode into the city. And normally that was declaring that he'd been successful and victorious in war. And he was coming for that point at which he would be enthroned and take over the role of the city, the city being the centre of the life of the nation. But if a king came in peace, in a totally different way, he would come on a donkey. And so when a king came on a donkey, it means that he's come to make peace not celebrate or make war. So it's important we hold those two sets of historical and cultural context in order for us to understand this story. So as we approach this story, what does it teach us? What is, what is this story teaching us about this king and his kingdom? Well, we could, if we had time this morning, talk about this as a political event because I think Jesus is saying something about government and the way government should work. We haven't got time to do that this morning. But, but go away and read the story again. I'd encourage you in your own time this week to go away and read the story again through a set of political lenses, not through a set of Christian, traditional Christian lenses. But we are going to look at this story. And um, we're going to look at, uh, as I said, two things. Number one, the king. And number two, the shape of his kingdom. So let us look at this. Number one, the nature of the king. Zechariah says this, listen to the sort of contrast in the language of these few words in this verse. Triumphant and victorious is he. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding on a donkey. I mean, there's a bit of a contrast in the language that's used here, isn't there? You know, he is triumphant and victorious, but he's humble and riding on on a donkey. So let me say something first of all about the nature of this king. Uh, or, sorry, yeah, the nature of this king. So the first thing is this what the disciples expected and what they got were two different things. What the disciples expected and what God was about were two different things. So I think here, and it gives some indication in other places, particularly in Acts, that what the disciples were expecting was a new king to be installed in Jerusalem and for the Roman Empire to be overthrown and bring them liberty straight away. But actually what we have to understand is that God is at work in a much bigger, broader and profound way than simply liberating a nation. What God is about is liberating every person, everywhere. His purpose is not simply for Israel, but for the nations. Not simply for one people group, but for all people groups. Not simply for one point in time, but for eternity. 
So what God is doing, though he might not meet their expectations, is far more than they could ever believe or expect. And I think this is so true in our own individual lives. Sometimes it is really difficult for us to comprehend what God might be doing. In fact, sometimes he just doesn't do what we expect, does he? I've found this. When you pray, the answer that comes is not the answer you necessarily expect. But I want to encourage you this morning that God is always about something far bigger than simply meeting your own individual expectations. His purpose is broader. His ways, Isaiah says, are not our ways. And so I want to encourage you, wherever you are, you might feel disappointed in some shape or form. God is always about something bigger and greater than you could expect. Secondly, I think it speaks of the radical nature of humility. The radical nature of humility. In, in a monumental act of the purest type of love, God in Christ is going to literally pour out his life for the world that he loves. Literally pour out his life. He is, he is, uh, is life-giving in the way he pours out his love for humankind. From this we can learn that the fullness of life that he won for us enables us too to pour our lives out for others. So we too live and uh, uh, live our life in the image and imitation of Christ, don't we? So I suppose, again, my question for you this week is, who are you going to pour out your life for in the image and nature uh, or in the same way that Jesus did? And then the second thing this passage teaches us is, that the, is something about the nature of the kingdom of God. Zechariah says this, He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. As I've mentioned, uh, cultural context and history tells us that you'd expect a new king to come on a donkey, sorry, to come on a horse, not on a donkey. Um, but Jesus comes not just on a donkey, but on the colt of a donkey. Here is one of the most beautiful things about Jesus. He comes as a man of peace, not as a man of war. He comes both as a peace bringer and a peace maker. He comes unarmed and in doing so is unarming. Christ needs no weapon for the battle that he ultimately wins. The Apostle Paul in his writings tells us this, that he makes peace through the blood of the cross. Peace is established through his self-giving, sacrificial love, poured out for even the Roman soldiers that crucify him on the cross. I'm reminded, as I read this, I was reminded of Isaiah's words, where he speaks, he looks forward to this day when this Saviour, this Messiah, is going to pour out his love in such a profound, self-giving way. And he says this, In this day, swords will be hammered into plowshares, and spears into pruning hooks. So powerful is this king that he makes a radical change forever. In other words, he repurposes weaponry for a different purpose. The purpose. So weapons meant for death and destruction are redeemed and transformed to become tools for health and growth. 
And this made me begin to reflect, uh, how, how does this apply to us today? How does this apply to me today? Well, I'd say this. Here's two applications this morning, and at the close of my second application, we'll pray together. Number one is lay down your weapons. What do I mean by lay down your weapons? Um, uh, we often joke when Marin and I have a, have, have, have a little... Uh, have a, have a little argument. She, she, she says, and we giggle together, uh, them are fighting words. You know what I mean? She, she sort of reflects and says, some, so, you know, so in our, in, I think it's true of our culture too, uh, um, language can be highly weaponized, can't it? And if, if we, even if we sort of reflect on um, news recently, even, dare I say, on the famous interview between Harry and Meghan, and, uh, and it's a, you know, for whatever you believe about what is said, there was, uh, words were used in a particular way. I would suggest in some cases weaponized. You know, there's clearly discord relationally. And so language is being used in that context to, um, I think probably, possibly, even to get their own back. I don't know. And it just made me think about how we interpret this relationally for you and me today. So I want to suggest to you that language can be a powerful weapon. How can you use that language in a way that instead of creates war, creates peace? And secondly, I would say we need to actively choose peace. Again, in, the context, in a relational context, I'd say taking offense is an act of hostility. I don't know about you, but we're great wall builders. But Jesus comes as a wall dismantler. He comes as a reconciler of people. And so I want to encourage you this week to think about two things. Number one, think about using language. How can God transform the way you talk, the language you use for the purposes of his kingdom and of bringing peace? And think about this too. Actively choose peace in terms of the way you relate together, not choose war. Look for ways to make peace, not war. Look for ways of reconciliation, not offense. Why don't we just pray together as we've opened this passage together, and then I think the band are going to lead us in a response in worship. So, Father, we thank you that the nature of your kingdom is not like any other kingdom, any other earthly kingdom. You come as a man of peace, not a man of war. You come with transformation, transforming power in your self-giving love, one that can change us, change humankind, change human hearts forever. We ask that you would change our hearts today, Lord Jesus. We pray you would transform us. Come. King Jesus, come, King Jesus, we pray. Come in this week and change us that we might look more like Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Applecote Christian Centre. For more information about who we are, what we believe, and how you can get involved, check out our website, www.amblecoatchristiancentre.org.uk.